0: When I took my first drink in ninth grade, it was like this huge pressure valve got released. Like a button was pushed and I took a deep breath for the first time in my life. You know, I was able to relax for the first time in my life. I was able to let like all the plates that I had spinning just drop. And I was like, oh my God, I need this like more and more and more and more and more. And so I think it was a very self-imposed pressure that I had put myself under. Once you, I think, cross the line of true physical addiction, you're just so physically addicted, it's very hard to turn back from that.
1: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Moira Kasaba. Moira is a former alcoholic, addict, and college dropout turned thought leader, seven-figure entrepreneur, and one of the most successful Beachbody coaches ever. Moira has been sober for over 20 years, and today we dive deep into her story. Today on the show, we discuss the five things that have helped her stay sober for over two decades, why she still goes to 12-step meetings despite being heavily involved in the self-help space, how to let go of shame and judgment from others when asking for help for your addiction, how she outgrew her identity as an addict and used her addictive personality to build a seven-figure business, we also talk about what led her down the path of addiction, what getting sober at 21 looked like, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Moira Kasaba to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Moira, welcome to the podcast.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Doug. I'm glad we finally got to connect and it's an honor and a, and a pleasure to be here.
1: I'm excited to, to uh, dive deep into your story and talk about like how you've built this incredible business and life for yourself but I think where I want to start is you've been in recovery from addiction for over two decades. That's so impressive. And a lot of people who listen to my show, they, they've either recovered from addiction, they know somebody who's battling addiction. If you were to like point at like five things that have consistently helped you through these last two decades, um, stay away from you know, substances and things that used to destroy your life, what would you say they would be?
0: God, such a good question right off the bat. That's amazing. Um, I would say meetings, you know, I got sober through 12 step programs. Um, and I'm a big believer in like, there. there's possible different paths for everybody in recovery, especially as, you know, this day and age, there's just so many more options out there. Um, so I would say, you know, 12 step meetings, 100% is kind of like, it's also like my insurance policy. You know, it's like I just recorded a podcast earlier this morning and I answered that question of like, why do I still go to meetings? I'm like, I would never roll the dice on that. Like I would never roll the dice on maybe I'll stay sober if I don't go to meetings. You know, the, the, the cost is it's too high. It's my life. And so meetings, um, sponsorship, being connected to people in recovery, um, a connection with God, you know, a, a daily connection with a higher power. Um, gosh, you you asked for a five. <laughs> um, I think just my personal growth journey, like a little, you know, that can be spirituality, but it's also just being in, being driven in kind of a growth mindset, a personal growth path. You know, I'm always looking at my stuff. I'm always, and that's the steps too, you know, but I'm always kind of doing the work. So doing the work is number four, right? Whether that's therapy, whether that's a life coach, whether you're working with your sponsor, whether you're in a mastermind group, I'm always doing the work. And I'm always absorbing information, meaning I'm an avid reader, podcaster, listener to You know, like I'm just, I'm hungry for all the teaching out there, all the knowledge, all the information, all the experience and so I'm just constantly kind of flooding my mind with that. So yeah, I would say those five things pretty much nail it.
1: Those are five incredible things that obviously have have helped you throughout your journey. And I know I've I've heard those before, so I, I'm sure you know I know that like doing those things also helps a lot of people um, stay away from things that were destroying their lives. I want to go into something um, that you touched on and you talked about that going to meetings. Um, 12-step meetings are still pivotal in your recovery personal development in many ways offers a lot of this similar stuff to yeah. 12-step community giving back personal growth accountability like working on yourself what does going to the meetings give you that personal development and masterminds doesn't
0: yeah Such a great question. So, back in the day, like early sobriety, I remember Tommy Rosen and I haven't followed his work in a long time, but he wrote a book called Recovery 2.0. And the way that I remember kind of looking at that was like this huge aha in my life at that moment where I was like, you know, I don't want to say that 12 steps can only take you that far because I know some incredibly growth minded individuals that that's like their jam and it has been for a long, long time. But for me, I kind of felt like you know, my 2.0 recovery, which was based on the foundation of the 12 steps and, uh, 12 step programs, you can't, you know, build a house on n- no foundation. So like that foundation has to be there. The 2.0, the recovery, the getting back into church, the phys- being physically fit, you know, masterminds, personal, you know, personal growth seminars, all that stuff. That's kind of like my 2.0 But without the 1.0, you don't really get to do the 2.0 in my, my experience for me personally. And so meetings, it's just like, it's like going back to the heart of all of it. You know, I would almost compare it. And I mean, I am, I would, I definitely call myself a Christian, but I'm not like a religious person, you know, I'm more spiritual, but I would almost compare it to like, you can go to church but you can also read the Bible. (laughs) Like you can actually get down to the roots of what church is all about. And so I feel like that is 12-step meetings for me. You know, it gives me this insanely amazing opportunity to connect with other alcoholics. I'm sure you know, obviously, that like a room full of addicts and alcoholics, like there's nothing more refreshing, honestly. There's nothing more, um, there's just a connection that you can never replace you know that was actually the topic in a meeting i just went to yesterday was like you can't even put words to the instant and w- you and i had that right like it's funny when people pop up in my dms and they're like i'm in recovery too i'm like oh my gosh you know you wouldn't think you would ever be excited people from the outside looking in would be like wait you're excited that she had a cocaine addiction for 20 years i'm like she's my people you know <laughs> it's like there's just this connection there's an understanding um, there's a, a, an unwavering, like support. It's just a different vibe, you know? And I always say to people that really don't understand recovery meetings that you can almost compare it a little bit to a lot of people that go to church on Sunday. You know, you go for an hour, you kind of step out of your life to contemplate your life, to talk about these principles that just make you a better person. And, you know, you're talking about taking ownership. You're talking about paying it forward. You're talking about, you know, your character defects. You're talking about all these things that anyone on the planet could afford to do an hour a week of. You know, my mom always said, like, wouldn't the world be a happier place if everybody worked the 12 steps? And so for me, it's that foundation. But also, again, like, I'm not willing to roll the dice because I've seen so many people stop going to meetings and then relapse and die. You know, so why would I ever, like, I have children, why would I ever chance not going to meetings? It's not that big of a commitment considering what my life used to look like. And then I think the other piece is I feel very obligated in my sobriety to always be of service to anyone else that's struggling. And, you know, there's no better place to find people that are struggling than in the rooms of AA or NA or any of those rooms.
1: Diving more into this, um, I feel like 12 step rooms or AA and NA, it's like the low hanging fruit for a lot of people that are looking to transform their lives, whether they are a full blown addict or whether they just might think they have, like, they're like a functioning alcoholic or addict. And they're like, you know what? I needed to give this up. I got to go find people that can hold me accountable. I got to get around other people that share some of the same paths as me. Um, but a lot of times people are held back because of shame and they're like, you know, I don't I'm better than that or I don't need to go to that or they're not going to understand me or I'm going to feel judged. Um, Like, what advice do you have for somebody who's like in the in-between where they know they need to go and take that step into maybe going to something like a meeting or any other support group, but they're they're afraid of being judged?
0: Yeah, gosh, 20 some years later, I can still feel that like in my gut, you know, like the how scary it it can be to walk into a meeting. Um, There's no downside, you know, there's no downside. You're not ever going to walk into an AA meeting and then people around town are going to be talking about the fact that you were at the Tuesday night AA meeting on Fifth Street or whatever. Like people have so much respect for anonymity. A lot of the highest level people that I've met and I've known in my life are in the rooms of AA, you know, and I needed to kind of see that And I mean, gosh, I was a 21-year-old kid when I got sober, but I, I remember feeling that and it was so refreshing to walk into meetings with very upstanding citizens, with lawyers, with doctors, with, you know, I got sober in California, so like, you know, Hollywood's walking through the door and I was like, wait, maybe this isn't this shameful, horrible, like embarrassing place to be. like there's a lot of people in this room that have amazing lives that are proud to be in recovery. And I think that's the stigma that needs to change. I feel like I experienced that stigma change getting sober 20 some years ago on the West coast. And I've been on the East coast for a long time and it's still not here. It's still not here, you know, and that's a whole nother topic.
1: (laughs) I want to dive into um, identity really quick because I know that's something that has really um, helped you overcome a lot of things in your life. How do you balance um, not being ashamed of being an addict? And like you said, you still, despite all of your success and your decades of sobriety, you still go to meetings. So you identify with that path, but you're also into this identity into this identity work where you know that that's not your full story and you can move on from that. So how do do you blend those two?
0: Yeah, you know, that has been a journey in and of itself. So there was a point. So when I was living in California and I was sober those first several years, you know, I was very open with my sobriety because my circle was really just people in recovery. And when I moved to the East Coast, I kind of went underground with it. Like, I to the public, you know, I owned a wellness studio and I taught people privately. So I got, I had very intimate relationships with people I would see week after week after week for years that I never told I was in recovery, which is crazy to me at this point in my life because I'm so open with it. But it was probably 15 years of feeling still like it was a scarlet letter, you know, and, um, and really, I think that was my own insecurity. And living in the South, you know, it's, it's like people still like, she's an alcoholic, you know, or like, nobody talks about it. And that's probably my only regret in life, honestly, is that I wasn't more open about it as a young person in recovery in a place that's so judgmental and closed about it, that I could have been such an example. And so I'm trying to make up for that, right? But it took me time. Um, When I first started building a social media platform, I never, it never crossed my mind that I would ever talk about my sobriety. And a friend of mine in recovery, who was kind of a social influencer said, why don't you ever talk about your sobriety? Like just real curious. And I was like, like, because it's anonymous, you know, like I was like, you don't talk about that. And I remember taking that first baby step. Uh, and that first baby step was me posting Roman numerals on my anniversary. And I was like shaking and terrified. And, you know, that's all I posted and like walked away from the computer. And because I was able to get back the people that knew what that stood for, obviously a lot of people in recovery were messaging me like, Oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I had no idea. And they were so encouraging and so supportive that I was able to tell that story just a tiny bit more and a tiny bit more and a tiny bit more. So it was definitely over time that I felt, you know, every time I talked about it, I could be a little bit more raw with the reality of what that looked like for me. Um, But going to your identity piece, there was a point for sure about eight years ago where a couple people in the personal growth space that I was stepping into kind of challenged me a little bit on like your like solid, rock solid identity as being an alcoholic. Does that serve you? You know, and I remember getting kind of like really defensive, like do not challenge me on that because it's life or death. I mean, there's nothing more personal or deep, you know? And I lost my sister about eight years ago to addiction. And so it kind of coincided with that. Like, don't you dare challenge me on that part of my identity because if I ever start to talk myself out of it, I will drink, I will die. Like, that's the dominoes. There's only two, you know? And so I was terrified to kind of explore that but I did. And personally, and this is my own personal opinion, um, but I really want to do, I would love to do like research with and partner with some people on this. I today don't believe I was born an alcoholic. I believe that I was born with a genetic something different, right? Like one day we'll be able to identify the gene that leads to addiction. We can't yet, but I have that gene, but that doesn't make me an alcoholic it makes me a little crazy, (laughs) right? It makes me kind of have a screw loose that makes me driven in my work. It makes me driven in this. It makes me, and I don't even want to say obsessive because I'm not like OCD obsessive, but I just lock on to things. You know, when I was a kid, I was the best at every sport. I was the best in my class. I, I just was so driven. And so I think what I realized was, I'm not talking myself out of the fact that I absolutely was born differently. When I put alcohol in my body, something different happens to me chemically than a non-alcoholic, right? But I just didn't know how to channel it back then. And I really believe if you look at a lot of pro athletes, a lot of, you know, world changers, that once we identify that gene, we're going to be like, up, oh, yep. There it is. You know, it's it's probably the same thing that Laird Hamilton has. Like, what's the what's the screw loose that makes him go surf hundred foot waves? Like, you got to be a little crazy. You got to be a little off. You know. And so, it's really how you channel that. And I'll I'll wrap with this story. When I was kind of um just wrap up this point, when I was really going through that identity work on myself, I went out to brunch one Sunday with a girlfriend of mine and her husband. Um, is an ultra marathon runner. Like who runs a hundred miles at a time? You know, that's crazy. And we're sitting at brunch and I said, Hey, can I ask you a personal question? And I had just met him and he's like, uh, yeah, sure. And I said, does alcoholism run in your family? And he like looked at me kind of like crazy. And he's like, uh, yes. Why do you ask that? And I was like, "Oh, proves my theory." You know, like <laughs> you probably have this thing because it's not normal to want to go out and run a hundred miles. But you channeled it that way. I channeled it one way. And this is what I want to say: the same thing that made me an alcoholic allowed me to build a seven-figure business. That same little bit of crazy. So I think if we can start to reshape the way we look at this and start to see it through the lens of that we realize it's not so shameful right i talked to my son who's um, 14 going on 15 and i've said to him many times like i don't know if you have this but his nature is lock on driven you know and i'm able to parent from a place of saying listen if this is if you have these genetics that tend to lead itself to addiction you have the choice to channel that. Like you're either going to go play you know, college ball like you want to, who knows what comes beyond that, or you're going to end up completely imploding and throwing it all away because you go down the dark road. Like which one do you want to choose? And so I think we need to open up that conversation a lot.
1: Absolutely. And we'll definitely come back to bring this all full circle about how you truly like reshaped your identity and built this seven-figure business. But I want to go back to the genesis of this and talk about like what led you down this destructive path as a kid um you know you mentioned some some family history i'm so sorry to hear about your sister um and um but you you talked about um how you were just obsessed as a kid but you, you had success you were the best athlete you were the best in your class like what was it about alcohol and stuff like that Like 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 that was so appealing for you if you were already having so so much success as a kid.
0: Yeah. Great question. So I think, and it took me a lot a long time to kind of figure this out, because for so many years I was like, What? Like what what happened? Like why is it really just the genetic thing and I took a drink and I was physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, addicted and I couldn't stop? Because that's what it seemed like. And I think there is a physiological piece to that because I, I do have the genetics for it, but I, keep, I I think it's important to paint the picture of like, first of all, there's no such thing as a normal home, right? But mine was pretty darn normal. Like there was no abuse, there was no alcoholic parent, there was no, you know, tragic divorce that I had to weather as a child. Like it was pretty normal. And so that's why I always question like, God, I ended up like a hardcore addict, then bulimic, like what in the world? And so when I look back on that path, I see the personality predisposition to, you know, being driven, locking onto things. But what I really see is I was so driven and that was not put on by my parents. I think society rewards that, you know, when I took my first drink in ninth grade, I always say like, it was like this huge pressure valve got released, like a button was pushed and I just (sighs) took a deep breath for the first time in my life. You know, I was able to relax for the first time in my life. I was able to let like all the plates that I had spinning just drop. And I was like, Oh my God, I need this like more and more and more and more and more. And so I think it was a very self-imposed pressure that I had put myself under. And I mean, you think about it, you look at this in Hollywood, you look at this with kids that are, you know, just driven, driven, driven academically, and then they kind of burn out and turn to addiction and things like that. I, I think that was it. And then once you, I think, cross the line of true physical addiction, you know, I could not... Function without having alcohol in my system. It wasn't like you know you cross that line of like you need alcohol in order to stop your hand shaking so you can do anything. Once you cross that line, you're just so physically addicted. It's very hard to turn back from that.
1: Yeah, it's like a dog chasing its own tail, right? It just it just doesn't work. Um, I want to talk about the pressure that you brought up. So you said that like a lot of the pre- the pressure that you put that was put on you was self imposed. Um, What was that pressure from? Was it because your self-worth was based on how you performed as a kid? Was it that you just liked to win so much that you put all this pressure on yourself? Like what was driving all of this pressure?
0: Yeah. You know, you could say maybe because I'm the youngest of six. So it was like, look at me, you know, probably some like, I need some attention. You know, there's six kids in this house. So maybe that's a piece Um, but again, I think it's when you're a child and I watch this with my own kids because they're really good at a lot of things. And I'm like, you're a 10 year old kid. It feels really good to get all the trophies to be awarded. Like it's the world we live in. And so it wasn't necessarily that I had a low self-esteem at all. I think I actually was pretty confident as a kid because I was like, I can do a lot of things really well. Like, this is awesome. And I think a lot of the eroding of my confidence and my self esteem came when all of a sudden I started doing things that didn't align with really where I wanted to go. Like, I always wanted to be a doctor, I always wanted to play sports at college. And then all of a sudden, you start that game of like, you know, rationalizing with yourself that you don't really want to do that. But really, you're just that's the alcohol and the drugs talking, you know? And so you start to live a little bit of that guilty life. And so I don't think I actually had a low self-esteem to begin with. I think what eroded my confidence was the years spent in addiction, that you just feel like you're letting everyone down. You're the worst person in the world. You can't stop. You can't do anything right. You're breaking promises. You're breaking trust. I mean, that's just a, that's a lot to carry as any addict knows. Yeah.
1: It's it's so much to carry, especially when your life starts falling apart too, right? Alongside of that. Um, so what was the trajectory like of, of your addiction? Like you talked about, you started in ninth grade and then it got to a place where it became incredibly habitual where you couldn't go a day without drinking alcohol to survive. Like what did that whole process look like for you?
0: Yeah, I would say it was like my senior year in high school that it went from drinking on the weekends to getting it whenever I could during the week. That's a little bit harder when, you know, you're still living at your parents' house. Um, But again, I was the youngest of six kids. There weren't that many eyeballs on me. And from the outside, I was still somewhat succeeding, you know, and they were like, she's the one that always kind of lands on her feet. So we don't need to worry as much about her. But so they thought. And the second I was out of the house, I mean, it was it was daily drinking from that point on. So I guess that was age 18, um, 19, 20, 21. So three years then of just more and more and more and more and more to just, you know, everyday blackouts like there are months of my life I, I really can't get a clear grasp on. There were car accidents. There were arrests. There were all the things that come along with that.
1: How did all of that impact like school and sports and stuff? Because you said on the outside, you know, people saw you as successful and you were doing well. Um, what kind of impact did it have on your you know, athletic and academic endeavors?
0: Yeah, so I decided not to play in college. And I really, we believe those lies, like when we're in addiction. You know, I really, truly believe that I was making a informed decision that I was opting to not do the college thing, even though that had been my, my, you know, trajectory. So I didn't play in, um, I didn't play sports in college as a direct result of, you know, choosing drugs and alcohol over that. Um, my college grades were definitely not great, but I was passing until, you know probably my last year i started to just do like a million incompletes you know my parents would be like what is going on and i just always had a great explanation cuz we're the master manipulators and i'm like oh this happened this happened this happened and always with the plan to like go back and finish the coursework and then i wouldn't and and so i left college i, I mean drop out whatever you want to call it before they could kick me out i definitely would have been kicked out at that point um, but I was like, I'm done. I need to get as far away from all of my my life, you know, you run away from your life. So that I was in Maryland at that point. And um my parents, thank goodness, were in Al Anon. I still don't know how they did this, but they had gone through Al Anon because of my older sister, the one that passed away. So they were very well versed in that. And when I said they kind of brought me home and said, You are like You need help. You're sick. We're here. We want to. We want to come alongside you. Like, let's get you well. And I said, I'm going to California. And I got on a plane and left. And they allowed me to go because they knew at that point. I mean, I'm 21 years old. They can't force any. You know, they unless they were gonna force me into rehab. And so they knew that I needed to hit my own bottom and that I needed to make that decision myself that them forcing me to get sober was never going to work. Um, so I flew out to California and I think that was summer of 1998 and then it was just a drunken debauchery, you know, for months and I started seeking help in the fall of that year and then my final sobriety date is that January 2nd. So that's when I for the first time took the initiative to like really have the wake up call of like this is not normal. Like I I can't I can't live this way, but I can't not live this way. Like I couldn't I knew I couldn't stop. Just kind of those, you know, when you surround yourself with other people that are using that much, you don't think you're that different, but I started to finally see it's crazy to say this because it's so not normal to do what I was doing. But when you're around people, that's all, that's all they're doing. That is normal, right? But I started to understand that what I was doing was not normal and that I did have a problem. I think I even at that point thought, I'm an alcoholic. But there was a period there where I just thought, so I got to control this, you know, but I couldn't control it. Um, so in and out of AA for a few months. And, um, it's interesting. I was on a podcast a couple weeks ago and I hadn't remembered this in a really long time, but he kept asking me like, what was the point? What was the point? I'm like, there wasn't a point. It just kind of happened. Um, but I called one of my friends that was in the room in AA and she was kind of like, I wouldn't say that she had been my sponsor, but she was kind of somebody that I had latched onto that was trying to help me. And I called her in early December, just drunk, you know, sob story. I can't stop drinking, whatever. One of those 2 a.m. calls. And she said, I can't talk to you right now, Moyer. my brother just committed suicide. And that was a wake up call for me. I remember hanging up the phone and just having that like moment of clarity of like, what the F am I doing? Like, I am such a mess, and. I called my parents that night, which you wake up the next day and you're like, oh God, oh geez, I've been pulling the wool over their eyes the whole time through phone calls. Like everything's great. Everything's fine. And I called them immediately and I was like, I need help. I need to go somewhere. Uh, You know, this isn't good. And um, that was kind of my first real stab at recovery. So I started going to a meeting every single day. Um, I relapsed one more time and then finally got back. To the rooms on january 2nd
1: well congratulations once again for your journey and being able to to maintain your sobriety for as long as you have um so you talked about the phone call that i guess was really the the moment where you decided to really take trying to get sober seriously right in the in the december of what 1998. um But then you also talked about how in college, like your life was falling apart and your grades were falling and then your parents um, sat you down. Then you essentially turned your back on them and then just went to California, right? What started to happen in California during those months that made you realize like, oh, like they're right. I have a problem. Confidence, maintaining a clean diet, staying active and exercising discipline are key indicators of a healthy individual. The practice of discipline extends to various aspects of life, including sleep patterns, dietary choices, and overall body care. Embracing discipline not only yields short-term benefits, but also lays a strong foundation for long-term health. It is important to recognize that skin health is an integral part of this holistic approach and should not be disregarded. Fortunately, incorporating skincare into your daily routine can be effortless, and that's where Caldera Lab comes in. With their products clinically proven to reduce wrinkles, fine lines, and signs of aging, Caldera Lab proudly stands as a leader in men's skincare. I'm a big fan of taking care of my skin and didn't realize I was only scratching the skincare surface by using store-bought products and getting a facial every few months. I'm a 35-year-old bachelor and spend a lot of time on camera and I decided that I need to do an even better job at maintaining my healthy skin. After seeing many of my friends use Caldera Lab, I decided to try their top-notch products. Their formulas combine pharmaceutical grade science with nature's purest and most potent ingredients and are simple to use. I've been using their Regiment bundle twice a day and have already had several compliments about the difference in my skin. Caldera Labs Regiment routine begins with their Clean Slate, which is a balancing cleanser to get things started. Then I add their base layer, a nutrient dense fortifying moisturizer to help hydrate my skin. Then I finish off with the Good, which is their clinically proven multifunctional serum that helps my skin look and feel tighter and smoother. So, if you want to upgrade your skin and confidence with products that use exceptional ingredients, head to calderalab.com and use my code Doug to get 20% off. Again, head to calderalab.com and use my code Doug to get 20% off. Be ready to experience a whole new level of health and skincare with Caldera Lab. Now, back to the show.
0: I think it was the. It's like, you know, they say in the rooms, like a head full of AA and a belly full of booze is not a good place to be. And so I had started to get. Just a little bit of like my eyes open to thinking about recovery because of what my when my parents kind of took me, they were like, "You got to go to meetings, you got to do this." I was like, "This is awful," but I had a little exposure, you know, and um, so I just started to kind of play that game with myself. Like I started to think about, "Is that even possible for me?" Like I don't even remember if I was trying. I'm sure I was trying to control it, but I knew I couldn't, and so I know. I know that that season, those last few months, there were two things that were happening. My soul was being like completely eroded. You know, the emotions were getting more intense, the depression, the just, I mean, just the rock bottom emotionally was getting to an unbearable level. But I can remember every single day, and this is why I say my my confidence and my self-esteem was so eroded during my years of addiction. Every single day, like making a devout, convicted promise to myself that I wouldn't drink. And every single day, I would. Every single day. So it was like, you know, when you really start to try to manage it yourself, control it yourself, and you are completely incapable day after day after day after day, you start to realize, I... I, I can't do this. Like I'm incapable of it. And that starts a very hopeless downward spiral because you can't imagine your life with it. You can't imagine your life without it. And that's what creates that rock bottom. You know, that re- last relapse I, I came back from, I just remember being like, the only word I have is like catatonic. Like I was just kind of like, I felt like there was like nothing in my mind or my body, you know, I was just kind of shell shocked of like, I don't know what else to do. I've been trying to get sober. It's not working. And, um, in like, I I didn't have the ability to pick up the phone. I didn't have the ability to go somewhere. I didn't have the ability to, you know, walk into the rooms of AA. It was just like staring at a wall and thank God somebody showed up at my house from recovery and was like, let's go to a meeting, you know? And I think at that point, that surrender that we talk about is allowing other people to kind of think for you, other people to do for you, to truly give over your will to the people around you that have had success in sobriety and just saying, tell me what to do, show me what to do, tell me where to go. Like my best thinking got me in this situation. So I'm finally surrendering that and willing to listen and willing to take direction
1: you know, obviously sobriety is incredibly challenging. And I think what's even more challenging is those initial days and months of sobriety. And especially when you're 21 years old, when you're in the thick of like your career as a party animal, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, Yes.
1: What were some of the, the shifts you had to make in your life? Like early on, like the first few weeks, other than going to meetings, like I'm talking about like your friendships, I'm talking about your habits, how you viewed yourself, what you did on a day to day basis like what did that all look like?
0: so I will never regret my first year in sobriety being truly a hundred percent like recovery based meaning if I was not at work or asleep, I was with people in recovery or I was at a meeting like I had to be otherwise like I would just get kind of crazy, you know, or kind of like up in my head and and emotionally unstable. And so I was, I stepped away from all the addict friends. I mean, when you're using at that level, that's the only people you really have around you. So I stepped away from that. And I really stepped into the relationships in recovery, which I can remember thinking like, the hell of I'm hanging out with you people, you know, but they became my greatest friends, you know, my, the, like best friends. You, you get make friendships in recovery in a month that are deeper than you've had in a 20 year friendship outside of the rooms. And I was lucky enough to be in San Diego where there are thousands of meetings a week, thousands and thousands of young people in recovery. So I was able to step into a, a, a friend group that was, you know, going snowboarding on the weekend and going to concerts and doing all kinds of like fun, crazy stuff together. Um, But that first year, that's all it was. You know, it was just, if I had any free time, that's who I was with or that's what I was doing. And I think that is so foundational to my life today. You know, it's like, you can't go back and do your first year again. So if you're new in recovery, like the more, the better, you know, I remember being probably two or three months into sobriety and one of my girlfriends saying like, of course I was struggling. Cause that first year is like a freaking roller coaster. You are like all over the place. You know, I've looked back at journals where I'm like, I can't believe my life is this good. It's the best thing. And then dated the next day, I'm like in the depths of despair, And, you know, I can't imagine going, I'm like, whoa. (laughs) you know. And so that, that first year was so pivotal, but those friendships were everything. But she said to me, she said, on, I guess, one of these like hard days I had, she said, are you doing 90 and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days? And even then I thought that's a little much, you know, I was going to a lot of meetings, but I certainly wasn't doing that. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm like, almost three months sober, you know, and she said, doesn't mean you can't decide today to do 90 meetings in the next ninety days. And I was like, oh dear God, that's like a huge commitment. But I always followed direction. I think that is that is two of the keys that I found in business success and recovery. Like when I started to build my business, I was like, oh I'm really good at this because of what I did in recovery. Right? Find successful people. Do exactly what they're doing, not what you want to do. You know, that's what I mean. A podcast, it's like you get these amazing people on here that are like, they tell you all their secrets. And then as listeners, so often we just take what we want and we don't do all of it. We just do what's comfortable or we do what we have time for. In recovery, I did every single thing that was suggested, every single thing that was suggested. And then the second thing that I don't hear talked about in recovery enough is I just, I talked, meaning if there was ever a whisper of a thought or I started to think something or, you know, I just got it out. Like I, I knew I didn't want to share about it in a meeting. You know, I'm still to that day when I walk into a meeting, I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing in my life is happening and I don't want to share about it. But I have to, like I absolutely have to because I have a proven record of that has helped me stay sober, right? So it's our thinking that leads us to the next drink absolutely. So it's like, if you get a thought in your mind, you better run it by somebody so that they can help shift you out of that train of thought and into a sober path. I remember my mom saying, at any given moment on the spectrum of drink sobriety, on any given moment, you are headed in one direction or the other. You know, with every thought, with every choice, with every relationship, and that really struck a chord with me.
1: I, I want to talk about doing the deep work um, because I know throughout your recovery, you've had some hardships. I know you struggled with like disordered eating. I know you struggled with self-worth issues. I know you've struggled with health. Um, what has the the work looked like for you so that you could learn to have a healthier relationship with stress, your emotions, um validation and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, you know, the work for so many years was the 12 steps. And anytime something would come up or I'd end up in a hard spot just what it, with whatever's going on, it's like I would go back to the step work because the step work really uncovers so much stuff. like it's just a modality that is really effective, right? So for many years, I would go back and work with my sponsor and she'd say, hey, let's do a fourth step around this issue. Let's do this. Let's do that. So for years, it looked like that. When I really was making a concerted effort to deal with my eating disorder, I went to a therapist, you know, I so I went down that road. And since then, it's looked so different. But I will say in the last 10 years, what it's looked like is a daily commitment to the work. I'm, you know, I've worked with life coaches. I've gone to seminars. I've worked with therapists. I've worked with sponsors. I've worked with sponsees. So it's always kind of different work. But what I've known now is, and this is a lot of what I teach, it's like, we all understand that, you know, we work out every day so that we, you know, can handle life, that we can be strong and flex, flexible and nimble and Healthy and you know, hopefully we won't get you know whatever whatever comes our way health wise that won't happen. But if it does, we're going to be strong and healthy enough to be able to to combat it. What I feel like a lot of people haven't connected is the daily mental work. You know that is preparing you for the storm that is inevitably coming. And just three weeks ago, a month ago, my sister was in a tragic accident. And I just use that as an example because it's the freshest thing in my mind. But the ability to handle that news, which was completely devastating and shocking, and to be able to take action and walk through that gracefully, that doesn't mean I didn't break down and cry, you know, but to be able to show up as the best version of myself to help, to serve, to do whatever I needed to do for my family that only came because of the daily work that I do every single day. And, you know, for me today, that looks like a daily practice of, you know, focusing on what's happening right in my life, rewiring my mind to grab onto the things that allow me to have a a blessed mindset. You know, I, I feel so blessed, but I only feel that because I am choosing to do the daily work of focusing and writing that stuff down. I actually have a morning process journal. Um, So doing that daily work, you know, listening to a podcast every day or listening to something growth-minded, reading a book before I go to bed, you know, then there's seasons where I'm like, I want to take this course. I want to get certified in becoming a high-performance coach or I want to go to this three-day event and I want to immerse myself And actually stepping out of my life and stepping into the deep work. There's times where, you know, I call a therapist and I'm like, hey, I I need to really get to the crux of this issue. I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day and she was telling me about some really just like deep stuff that she was going through family-wise. And I said, are you talking to a therapist? And it's just so interesting that so many of us are like, ah, no, I've thought about it. And I'm like, what's it? what is the downside here? <laughs> like, I know it costs money. So you could say that's, you know, a downside. But besides that, why are you not talking to a therapist? Like, why are we not doing the work? We just live with these things that are so hard on our hearts and heavy on our souls that hold us back in everything we do. It holds us back in our business, in our relationships, and in our relationship with ourselves. And it's like, do the work. You, there's such a beautiful freedom on the other side of it. I get that it's, it can be hard, but like, that's where the growth is found. That's where the beauty is found, you know?
1: Absolutely. Do the work and do your absolute best to prepare yourself for hard times. Then during those hard times, like, again, do your absolute best to do, to practice the things that you've learned, right? And you've been like doing um consistently to be able to get yourself ready for moments um, where you experience adversity, I want to go back and talk about um, pressure and validation and success. And, you know, I know you talked about, you put a lot of that on yourself as a kid. How did you deal with that being a Beachbody coach? Because I'm just thinking to myself, that's nothing but pressure. There's numbers, there's metrics. You're num- the number one coach out of hundreds of thousands of coaches. What was the your relationship like with pressure um, while, like, you know, while building your career there?
0: Yeah. So I think part of the identity work for me in those moments of like extreme pressure was also kind of changing the self-talk to, you know, we were like, I can't handle this. Like I'm crumbling. This is too much. And I'm like, wait a second. This is actually what I love. Like I love pressure. I love you know, pushing myself. I, I want to be the person that, you know, I was always asked in that business, like, why, why, why is that goal your goal? And I would always respond. I just want to see if I can do it. Like it wasn't for the accolades. It was, I want to see what my potential is. And that's something that I've learned over the years too. So many people are searching for their purpose. Like what's my purpose in life? What's the point of life? What am I here for? Like, I'm lost because I don't have my purpose. I'm going to tell you what everyone's purpose is, I believe. It's to live into our potential. It's to live up to our potential. And so when you have these crazy goals that are these insane stretch goals, they challenge you, right? And I just want to see if I give it everything I've got, what am I capable of? And what doesn't feel good, and I always teach a lot of women this and coaches this, is The only time, because I remember one of my um, top coaches asked me one time, she said, Moira, it is amazing to me how you bounce back from not hitting goals. Because, yes, I was number one in a company of hundreds of thousands. But along the way to success, you fail a lot, right? And she said, you don't even, like, think about it. You just, like, get back to work and keep going. Like, I've never seen anyone that's just, you know, doesn't, doesn't miss a beat when they fail. And she's like, can you help me with that? Because I have a hard time with it. My, my coaches have a hard time with it. And I thought about it long and hard. And I thought, this is the difference. If I have given something, every single ounce that I have, if I have done everything in my power, if I have given every minute that I can devote to something and it doesn't happen, I have no regrets. I'm like, That's what I'm capable of. I didn't hit the goal, but that's what I'm capable of. And usually you're pretty proud of yourself for giving it your all. What people don't connect is they don't hit a goal and 99.9% of people don't hit the goal. They fail. They have a really hard time with failure. What they're actually having a hard time with is the fact that they did not give it everything they had.
1: Did you ever feel like you're... Uh, I know you talked. I mean, I know you've talked about that. You've always been obs- obsessive with things, but do you ever feel like your addictive tendencies creeped up in a negative way while in that business, where it's easy to get addicted to fame, notoriety, money, success? Like, did, did you ever have any um, any battles with that?
0: I didn't really. I mean, I can look back and recognize. Gosh, it felt really good to be recognized. But I also don't see that as a negative thing because I even learned in the culture of a recognition-driven culture that, God, we need to be recognizing people more. Like we just need to be giving people credit and applause and thank you. We need to be, if we all went around today and and recognized 20 people in our everyday life for, I mean, because recognition is not that different than a thank you, you know, like I see you taking out the trash. I see you picking up your room. You're recognizing people for their work. I also learned because I got no recognition growing up because I was the youngest of six kids, right? Like it was just no recognition. And so I understood how important being recognized is. I understood how good it felt because I never had it. So my experience with recognition was kind of a beautiful one because it, it showed me how good it felt and it allowed me to turn around and recognize the heck out of other people and lift other people up. So it was never really a negative. I can definitely look back and it's also for me, again, it comes down to the, what am I, what is my potential? What am I capable of? Because, you know, people have asked me many times like, oh, are you going to you know, do top coach again? And I'm like, no, like, I just want to see if I could do it. You know, like check that box. Moving on, but there definitely was a shift in. I don't need the recognition anymore because I know my worth.
1: When did that shift? When did that shift happen?
0: Well, the it, it's so intertwined in the coaching world because part of part of recognizing your worth is. Well, to go on the spiritual route is just like, I am a child of God and that's all I need, right? But we also get in a very driven society with high achievers that somehow doesn't fill the cup. And so with the recognition I got from my crazy success in that business, part of that recognition helped me build my my self-worth, you know? Because I think we as human beings, it's so hard to find it within ourselves with ourselves. but when you are recognized from the outside in you start to go oh maybe i am kind of doing this thing well maybe i am really capable maybe i am doing things that you know are exceptional and so i needed that outside validation to build my own self-worth and then i think once i had it in the, what i was saying about it being intertwined in the coaching world you're changing so many lives that that recognition is coming back, not on a public level, but just on a relational level. And so you start to realize, I know the work I'm doing in the world. I I no longer need the public praise. But I want to say, I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily. It can go the unhealthy road for sure. But for me, it never did. Recognition was a beautiful thing. And I don't think anyone should ever feel guilty for saying Heck yeah, I love to be recognized. You know, I want to be rewarded and awarded and on stage. And there's a healthy side of that as well.
1: A hundred percent. Right. You just have to look at like your intention behind everything and how it's all serving you. Is it like filling a void in your life or is it just adding to the self-worth that you've already built from within? And you talked about how you have this internal self-worth because you're a child of God and you, and you know that you've talked about how the recognition from Beachbody helped you like validate your self-worth and then also helping other people and coaching others what do you do on a consistent basis other than knowing that you are a child of God to strengthen your inner self-worth
0: I think it goes back to like that daily inside work. So it's interesting. I I actually just had this kind of experience this morning and this is so radically different. I used to just be so hard on myself. So black or white, you know, if I, you know, ate a cookie on Monday, there's no point in going to the gym all week. You might as well just eat crap all week. You know, that whole thing. (laughs) I think a lot of us can identify with that. And, um, in my morning journal, I actually pulled it off the press because I felt like I got this God whisper that was like, you have to include this. And I called my editors and publishers. and like, stop the presses. I need to add one sentence. And they're like, Oh my gosh, what are you like? What? And I said, I need to, I need to put in there a prompt that says, what are you proud of yourself for today? Just that one sentence. What's one thing you're proud of yourself for? And I wrote something this morning and then I went to work out and, um, I was in my workout. And and this might sound silly to some people, but coming from such a black and white extremist, so hard on yourself background, I was so beat down tired this morning because it's like reentry from spring break. And I was like, I do not have it in me to go hardcore. And it was a cardio workout. And I'm like, I literally physically like can't. And so in the past, it would be like, you're such a failure. You're so like, oh, I couldn't even do my workout. I couldn't you know, I would just feel awful all day. And this morning I was like, I'm going to follow the modifier, (laughs) which like doesn't usually exist in my world. Like I'm the girl that goes hard and, you know, goes fast and all that stuff. And I was like, I'm going to follow the modifier. But now my success and what I'm proud of myself for comes in giving myself grace, giving myself a little bit of not, I don't even want to say it's a pass, But I was, and I wrote this actually in my Instagram today, I was like, I was so much more proud of myself for showing up and getting through that workout and allowing myself to modify today than I would have been if I pushed through or skipped it. You know, it's like, I'm not rewarding myself on the day I have tons of energy and a positive mindset and I show up. I'm rewarding. I'm so dang proud of myself on the days I show up and I'm tired, on the days I show up and I'm struggling, and on the days I show up and push through. So we have to understand that that's where the self-love usually comes in. And, but talking about a daily practice. So 365 days a year, I'm looking at my day going, what was one thing I can say specifically in this day that I'm proud of myself for? And those things stack, right? And you start to create new wiring in your brain. I mean, we're literally talking about neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain and therefore becoming a different person. Again, totally different subject. But a lot of times people think like, oh, maybe I should keep a gratitude journal. But you're rewiring your neural circuitry to have a new perspective, to see the world differently. There's science there.
1: So would you say that's still like a somewhat big battle for you is just to not be so hard on yourself and see everything as black or white?
0: I don't think that's a battle anymore. I think I've really come to this beautiful place of kind of harmony in that. Um I think kind of in that realm, what is hard for me still, that stems from all those years back is I'm such a doer. Like I'm so like, Action, 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 action. And it's not hard for me to relax. Like, it's not hard. That's not hard at all. I love to be alone. I love to take down time. I, you know, I was just on vacation last week and I was kind of off work and snowboarding and, and doing all of that. But kind of when I get back to my day to day life, just even if it's like, I got to go do this for the kids, I got to go do this air and I got like my motor, my brain never shuts off. Mm. Ask my husband. Like, he's like, <laughs> can you just, Stop, and I'm like, I don't really have it in me. But I think the fun thing is that we start. We need to, and this is where the this is grace, you know, and this is self love. We almost need to laugh about that a little bit. Like I, I kind of make fun of myself a little bit, and not in a tearing down way. But I'm like, actually, I can't because this is how I'm made. And so you start to make light of these things that you used to, that used to hold you down and back so much, and maybe you carried shame around, you know.
1: makes total sense. And um, I think there's so many people that relate to what you said about not being able to like, sometimes shut it off, like it just be action, 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 especially in the personal growth space where it's all about like, what's next? How can I get 1% better? How can I get just a little, you know, smarter in this area of my life or make a little bit more money or do this or do that. And it's like, that in itself, I think can become an addiction that if people aren't careful, they can fall into that trap. And it's an easy trap to fall into because, you know, on paper, it's a good thing, right? Like, you know, being focused on getting better is a good thing. But when it takes over your life and you're not able to take a step back and be like, wait a second, like, I'm doing so well right now. I need to just sit back and just celebrate this for a while.
0: Yeah, you just said it. I do have a hard time celebrating myself, you know, Um, just taking like, The long enough time to really revel in, you know, what you have accomplished and where you are. Um, I think one of the things that's helped me in kind of a backwards way is we live in such a social media driven world that I used to think like, you know, I got to be more of a public figure and more of a public figure and get more followers. I mean, it's the world we live in, right? That's just what our industry too kind of is. It just is. And again, I think when you build that self worth to a point you realize, um, I don't need to be famous. Like I don't need to be the number one, this or the number one, that, because if you're doing good work and you love what you're doing and you're changing lives and your income is where you want it to be, you don't need the other stuff, you know, unless you're trying to fill that like hole in your soul, which Again, if you really are grounded in those principles of of true growth and spiritual growth, you just don't need the public accolades like we kind of thought we did at one point.
1: And this brings everything back full circle as I now want to talk about identity. And I wanna talk about your journey with your identity as a as a person, like you mentioned, obviously your identity was wrapped up in sports and accolades as a kid and um grades, and then obviously as a an addict and then as a beach body coach and an entrepreneur like what does that journey looked like for you with identity, and what have you dis- what have you discovered? truly shapes like your identity as Moira? That's
0: a big question, Doug. <laughs> um, you know, I've learned that I mean, I love doing exercises that are like just list out all the things that you love, you know, because there's so many facets to like by nature, I am somebody that loves, you know, being in the ocean and like that just fills my soul and I I'm a mom and I just, there's nothing better. Those magical moments that are like euphoric where you're like, there's nothing better than watching my son play baseball or watching my daughter do this, you know, but I do know looking back that in some way I was born to teach, you know, and to heal on some level. So I think those titles kind of define the whole entirety of my life. You know, even when I thought I wanted to go into medicine that was health related, Uh, My mom was a nurse practitioner and she had her master's in education. So it's interesting that she had the teacher piece and the health piece. And so those are such big pieces of me. Um, but I think what's really important and I've done some keynote speeches around this is the idea that we're all of these things. I am insecure and confident. I am a hot mess and super driven and dialed in like all of us are all the things. And when we, one of my favorite expressions from AA is comparing my insides to your outsides, right? So I might, let's take this example. We both have podcasts. Say I was brand new to the podcast world and I felt super insecure and less than and incapable and not good on camera and not good with interviewing. And like, there's Doug, crushing it over there, like comparing my insides to what I see on your outsides. That's what we do. But I can tell you that we're both have parts of us that crush this. We both have parts of this where we feel like we don't know what the hell we're doing. You know, like like all of us are all the things, but the identity work so often comes from who am I choosing to show up as? And I think we're not, we're not one thing or the other on any given day. And so it's like, we have to understand that everybody is all the things, but that our identity is our choosing. And I think, you know, Natasha Graziano just wrote one of my favorite books because I was like, I could have written this word for word. It's like everything I believe in. Um, And I can't even remember the title. It's like, be, be her now. It's not be her now, but it's something like, be it now to become it or something. And it's like stepping into the identity of what you aspire to be, because there's parts of you that are already that, you know, and putting on that identity of, of how we want to show up in the world. Because just like I said, we can all show up super confident or super insecure. But if we do the prep work to step into that confident identity, then we can show up as that.
1: This is an amazing place for us to end our convo. I mean, I think there was so much wisdom uh, dropped in this episode, but what you just said about what you just said said there with everything was so powerful, but especially like not comparing your insides to somebody's outsides. Like if people could just remember that one thing, (laughs) their, their lives would be so, you know, your life will be so much more peaceful if you can just really... As hard as it is sometimes, just lo- learn to understand that a you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, and b that you know there's so much more that goes into somebody's life than what you see on. There's so much more that goes into somebody's life, um, you know, than just what you see on social media. So, Moira, this has been incredible. I wanted to thank you once again for coming on, for your vulnerability, and sharing everything that you shared. Um, if people want to connect with you online, if they want to learn more about what you're doing now, if they want to listen to your podcast, where's the best place to do that?
0: Yeah, it's pretty easy and complicated at the same time. (laughs) So it's all Moira Cassava. So super simple, but hard to spell probably. So, um, M O I R A K U C A B A, but Doug, you can probably put it in the show notes or whatever. So that's my website. That's my Instagram. That's the TikTok. That's everything.
1: I will be sure to include that stuff in the show notes for sure. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is share a takeaway. We covered so much as far as recovery, sobriety, Moira's story. We talked about um, her with the Beachbody business. We talked about identity. We talked about self-worth. We talked about you know not comparing your insides to somebody's outsides. We talked about so much. So whatever your takeaway was, make sure to share it and tag Moira and tag Moira and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.